Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Prospect Lives Seven Voices on modern Britain. Will there be butterflies? Will there be sun? My dogs are always pleased to see me, ecstatically so. Every generation thinks they're the hardest done by, but you can't ignore the facts. Our life together filled the decades Geoffrey described as playing an injury time. What crazy times we live in. Cricket is drama. When people show you who they are, Believe them the first time. Welcome to Prospect Lives, our brand new podcast. I'm Alan Rusbridger, editor of Prospect magazine. When I arrived at Prospect, I wanted the magazine to be about people as well as ideas. But when I thought about adding a live section to the back pages, it didn't feel quite right. I soon realised we didn't need a life section, we needed a lives section, a chronicle of disparate experiences of modern Britain by a new family of regular prospect writers, filling us in on what they're thinking about each month. We left our seven writers in April. Actor Sheila Hancock was nursing a broken wrist after a fall, while psychiatrist Rebecca Lawrence was exploring the complex relationship between anxiety and hope. Farmer Tom Martin was collecting the best nuggets of old farmer advice, while Jen Zedda, uh, I never know whether to say Zedda or Zia, but let's call it Zedda this month, Serena Smith, was disillusioned with life in Britain after a visit to Denmark. This month, Jason Thomas Fornillier, an expert by experience in the asylum system, argues that Pretty Patel's plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda amounts to institutional inhumanity while Anglican priest Alice Goodman suggests that the Church of England should face up to its fear of death. Meanwhile, former England cricket captain and psychoanalyst Mike Brearley enjoys a play by Shomet Dutta about Beckett, Pinter and cricket. But let's begin with Sheila Hancock as she faces the difficult question of whether to sell her French home. Possibly the biggest challenge of old age is learning to let go. Yesterday, after months of dithering, I put my French home on the market. A series of events have led up to me letting go of something I love. In February, I broke my wrist very badly, having glumly queued in Marseille airport with other countries rather than my erstwhile fellow Europeans. I then negotiated the car journey to my home in Provence with my now splinted broken wrist. I felt a bit wobbly on the stone steps in the garden. Despite the mellow spring sunshine, the house felt cold on my old bones. Searching for kindling in the garden and heaving the logs into the wood-burning stove was not the joy it used to be. My spinal compression fracture didn't enjoy all the bending and my knees needed a cushion for the kneeling. Blowing the flames made me cough. When old Denis greeted me warmly, my rusty brain struggled to summon up my French, underused in lockdown. My usual surge of delight at being in my French house was deadened by exhaustion. 
No matter how often I visit the gym or do my daily 5,000 steps, my body has been in use for nearly 90 years and it's wearing out. It cannot carry or chop logs and a broken elderly bone takes a long while to heal. Thanks to Brexit, access to wonderful French healthcare will soon be unavailable to me. I will need to be nearer to my daughter so she can carry me off to A&E when I incur injury through reckless behaviour, as with my wrist. I have faced the inevitable conclusion that I must let go of my 30 years of French living, full of lavender, sunflowers and glasses of rosé in the heat with beloved friends. I am part of this French community and letting go will be agony. When old folk fight against going into a home, it is not regret at leaving their own bricks and mortar, but that daily chat with the newsagent, the giggle with the neighbour's child, the cup of tea in the cafe, chatting to the locals, the visit to the library, little rituals that make life worth living, rather than sitting with a lot of old people watching the telly all day with the occasional coach trip or being cajoled into singing Roll Out the Barrel by a condescending entertainer. Letting go of things is difficult all through life, whether it be your job, a retirement, your children taking wing, a hopeless but exciting relationship or activities that your ageing body gradually rebels against. For women... When do you let go of the hair dye, the thick foundation, the mascara and scarlet lipstick that no longer become an ageing face? For women, when do you let go of the hair dye, the thick foundation, the mascara, the scarlet lipstick that no longer become an ageing face? I have started that particular journey and it's a great relief to stop trying to be anything but what you are to throw away any creams that promise eternal youth, not because they don't work, but because it's no longer your mission. One way of tackling the inevitable letting go is to plan and relish what will take its place. At present, I cannot think of anything that will replace the profound joy of the gentle pace, the dear friends and neighbours of my French life. But I will. I must. What's this space? Looming on the horizon is the ultimate letting go, death. How will I face that? Maybe a time will come when I'll be only too happy to let go of pain and exhaustion. But sitting here with the sun on my back, watching two butterflies dancing round some flowers, if the call comes now, well, I just won't go. I don't know what comes next after death, so I can't plan the future. Will there be butterflies? Will there be sun? I'm not going till I know. It's all too vague. Quite simply, whoever is in charge should understand I'm not letting go yet. I'm going to cling on for dear life. As Sheila highlights the value of the rituals that make life worth living, Rebecca Lawrence celebrates the comfort that pets can bring. Sometimes it feels as though my patients have nothing left in their lives. Alcohol or mental illness has taken everything that they loved. Family, friends, joy, and I'm filled with fear for them. What will they do when they go home? But then they mention their dog, and suddenly I feel just a bit more hopeful. Many of my patients have pets, dogs, cats even reptiles and rats. As mental health professionals, we sometimes worry that, when gripped by addiction, our patients may not be able to care for their pets properly, but this is rarely the case. Why do animals make us feel better? This will be a dog-focused answer because I have dogs, but I'm sure it can be extended to many species. My dogs are always pleased to see me, ecstatically so. They don't talk or try to make me do things that I don't want to do, other than take them for long walks in the rain, and they sit as close to me as they can. They let me nurture them and they show no reproach, except when I don't want to throw a ball for the hundredth time. They always forgive me whatever I do and I never feel lonely when I'm with them. 
When I've been ill, I've found my dogs to be a great and undemanding comfort. Having a dog makes you exercise in the way that a gym membership never can. And walking a dog can be social. You're more likely to say hello or exchange a wry smile with another dog walker. It may not be much, but it is a connection that can change a lonely day. When I was first admitted to a psychiatric hospital, there were still occasional pets on wards, maybe a fish tank, sometimes a budgie. I wouldn't describe myself as a fish lover, but there is something soothing and hypnotic about their movement. The presence of pets is normal and reassuring. We no longer have pets in the hospital where I work. No one formally acknowledged the cat that, until recently, wandered the wards, but it was a cheering presence for patients and staff alike. I don't know where it meandered off to. Although ward pets may not be permitted, therapy pets are now recognised as a source of joy to people in hospices and hospitals, and it would be lovely if this practice was more widespread. But I would still favour a permanent ward pet, even a small one like a gerbil, and I can't see what harm it would do, given that rodents are allegedly never too far away anyway. It would give patients something interesting to observe as well as something to care for. The pain of losing a pet can be huge, especially if your main reason for living is a rather old dog with health problems. Some years ago, I had a patient who was quite ill and alone and a worry to all those who cared for him. But he had a dog that he walked for miles and to whom he was devoted. We all liked his dog too. It was the only dog that was allowed into outpatient appointments. Admittedly, some of the other patients had rather scary dogs. We all worried about what would happen when this dog died. How would the man cope? I went to work in a different department, but much later I heard that, when the time came, he had done the sensible thing, got another dog and carried on as before. You never forget a beloved animal, but you can love another one. As patient and doctor, I think animals can bring joy and comfort to many. At times of illness and sadness, my dogs, Jacob and Lola, have provided me with great consolation, all without even trying. For Jason Thomas Fenillier, the government's plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda feels personally insulting, and he fears for fellow LGBTQIA plus people seeking refuge. When making a statement to the House of Commons in April about the new plan to offshore asylum seekers to Rwanda, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, accused the opposition of being xenophobic because of their concerns about human rights abuses in the country. The irony of this made me laugh. Instead of the UK Parliament, I felt like I was watching the House of Representatives in the United States as Patel flagrantly used distraction and misleading information to divert criticism from her plan. As a person of colour, the ability to deal with racism and bigotry is part of my DNA. But listening to the Home Secretary and Prime Minister speak on the policy, I've never felt so hated as an individual. The party's hostile environment policies are the most xenophobic the country has seen for decades. I have poured over the Memorandum of Understanding with Rwanda, as I do over all documents that I worry might affect me and others in my situation. It seems incredibly rushed and gives limited detail about how the arrangement is intended to work. Would a single male LGBTQIA plus asylum seeker like me be sent to Rwanda? Will people seeking asylum in the UK via boat or lorry be transferred there by force? The government has said that the purpose of the policy is to disrupt the business model of people smuggling gangs. But Home Office officials have also suggested that families are less likely to be sent to Rwanda, raising concerns even from the architect of the hostile environment herself, Theresa May, that this will increase the trafficking of women and children. Will those awaiting a UK asylum decision in Rwanda be protected by British laws? There are so many unanswered questions. What we do know for sure 
is that the policy is migrant offshoring, similar to the Australian systems on Nauru and Papua New Guinea. The Australian government funded staff and supported the processing of asylum claims, and those accepted as refugees were not given settlement in Australia, but in Papua New Guinea and Nauru. In the UK's government's plan, those granted refugee status will be settled in Rwanda, not the UK. In 2016, there were reports of child abuse, sexual assault and self-harm in detention centres in Nauru. How can the UK government ensure that this will not happen in offshore detention in Rwanda, 6,000 miles away? The Prime Minister has described Rwanda as one of the safest countries in the world. But just last year, the UK's Ambassador for Human Rights raised concerns to the UN about Rwanda's failure to properly investigate allegations of human rights abuses. She also accused the country of failing to support victims of trafficking. Britain has itself accepted asylum seekers from Rwanda over the past decade because although it is making strides in economic growth socially and politically, the nation still bears the scars of the recent past. As an LGBTQIA plus man, I am worried that this policy will have horrendous effects on people like me, and I am particularly concerned about transgender men and women. The Foreign Office's own advice for visitors to Rwanda says homosexuality is not illegal in Rwanda, but remains frowned on by many. LGBTQIA plus individuals can experience discrimination and abuse, including from local authorities. There are no specific anti-discrimination laws that protect LGBT in Rwanda. How can the Home Office send us there? But no suggestion has yet been made that we have an exemption. Let's be clear. One of the UK government's motives here is straightforward, to deport people who are already here. As the policy affects asylum seekers who have arrived since 1st January 2022. Its other aim is to stop people in need from building a life here. However, speaking personally, the policy would not have deterred me from coming to the UK, as I was so desperate to escape the situation I was faced with at home, and others have even said that they would still have come, but would have hidden from the authorities on their arrival. Don't be fooled into thinking that the government's aim is to stop people smugglers. The evidence from Australia shows offshoring doesn't work. In reality, it is all about making positive headlines in the right-wing press. Remember this, because it will happen many times in your life. When people show you who they are, believe them the first time. Priti Patel and Boris Johnson have done so emphatically. Jason is not the only one feeling let down by the government. Farmer Tom doesn't believe it's doing enough to support farmers who are in crisis due to the war in Ukraine. What crazy times we live in. The news cycle lurches from economic shock to natural disaster to political upheaval and now to war. The conflict in Ukraine has awoken a striking fraternity between the Brits and the Ukrainians. We are horrified by what we see on our television screens and want to help in any way. Unfortunately, the war has also destabilised our food supply chains, placing some farmers into serious hardship. Farmers have experienced shocks before and weathered them with typical resolve. We feel no other option than to count the cost, learn the lessons and plant again. But the current situation is without precedent. 
First of all, there's a crisis in fertiliser supply. The price has more than quadrupled, approaching £1,000 per tonne within a year. This recent surge is due to the escalating cost of natural gas, of which Russia is the world's largest exporter. Huge amounts are typically required to produce artificial nitrogen fertiliser, and this has crippled the supply of dozens of other inputs as well, affecting farmers, which then ultimately impacts the food on our shelves. Around 30% of the world's wheat also comes from Ukraine and Russia, and at the same time, the cost of grain has risen by nearly £100 per tonne, which is a small compensation for arable farmers like me, but a massive blow to poultry farmers for whom grain is a significant component of feed costs. As production expenses skyrocket for farms, it won't be long before consumer food prices have to increase to uncomfortable levels. Comments then from the Secretary of State for Agriculture, George Eustace, at the National Farmers Union Conference seem to imply that the million tonnes of artificial fertiliser used in the UK each year could be replaced, at least in part, by organic manures. According to the NFU, this would require 33 million tonnes of organic manures, such as farmyard manure or sewage sludge from human waste. Put simply, however, we don't have any of this to spare. Any manure produced at present is already put to good use with little or no surplus. As a farmer, I'm left scratching my head about the government's response. Is this perhaps well-coordinated spin, giving the impression that everything is fine to avoid handing political advantages to Putin? Do our decision-makers really think that the market, and our supermarkets in particular, will resolve this issue with the fallback of relying on imports should all else fail? As I've argued in previous columns, importing is not a solution. If we import more food, we export our carbon footprint and with it any control we have over conditions of stewardship and welfare in food production. So is there any hope? On our farm, we grow clover beneath our arable crops, which replaces some of the need for artificial fertiliser by fixing the nitrogen that makes up 78% of the air around us. When I rang our clover seed supplier recently, I expected him to tell me that he had sold out as other farmers sought to try the same tactic. I was surprised then to be told that sales hadn't increased. In fact, they had decreased. Farmers who are faced with output prices increasing, but input costs doubling, tripling or fluctuating wildly are struggling to budget or plan. The multi-annual cycle of farming has been crippled by market chaos. Instinct counts for very little and farmers like me are in shock. The wolf isn't at the door. He's running riot in our food supply chain. And sometimes I wonder if he's in government. As Farmer Tom warns food prices might dramatically escalate, Serena Smith reflects on how her generation are already feeling the pitch. When I was a child, nothing seemed fair. I would complain to my parents that it wasn't fair that I couldn't have ice cream for supper, or adopt ten dogs, or play Neopets instead of going to school. When I was a grown-up, I thought, things would finally be fair. But now that I am a grown-up, sort of, things seem less fair than they ever were. My parents probably hear me say, it's not fair, more often now than they did 20 years ago. When my dad went to university, he received a grant and paid no tuition fees. When my mum was in her 20s, she bought her own place in Dulwich. Meanwhile, I owe student finance over £60,000, admittedly, It's unlikely I'll ever earn enough to repay this in full and fork over the lion's share of my income every month just to have a mould-speckled roof above my head. It's not fair. Of course, in some ways, my generation is very lucky. We're lucky to have Airbnb, Uber, Netflix and Deliveroo. But while small luxuries like these have never been so accessible it seems that the basics have wriggled increasingly out of reach. Every generation thinks they're the hardest done by, but you can't ignore the facts. Gen Z is the loneliest and most anxious living generation. The birth rate is falling, largely because young people can't afford nappies, feeding bottles or childcare on top of their own living costs. We either hand over our savings to private landlords for a bedroom ridden with damp, or spend our 20s tiptoeing round our parents' homes because getting on the property ladder is impossible. Things have been bad before, the winter of discontent in the 1970s, for instance, but official forecasts are predicting that we're about to experience something worse, as living costs have soared to absurd levels while wages have stagnated. 
The current economic crisis will undoubtedly hit the young and old alike, and it will hit the poor the hardest. Young people are more likely to live in poverty than previous generations, with many in low-paid jobs or insecure work. Social scientist Bobby Duffy argues in his recent book, Generations, that it's unproductive to perpetuate stereotypes. The idea that baby boomers are greedy, selfish and willfully ignorant of the fact that luck, and not smart decision-making, explains their greater financial security, is as unhelpful as the trope that young people are entitled narcissistic snowflakes. We have no control over the circumstances we're born into, after all. So I can't be too angry at boomers for owning half of all UK housing wealth. Had I been alive 50 years ago, I might have bought a house too. It makes more sense to direct my indignation at the Conservative politicians who have been in power for over a decade and created these exquisitely hostile conditions. David Cameron for trebling tuition fees and squandering the government's youth budget. Rishi Sunak for hitting graduates with a stealth tax rise. Boris Johnson for, well, everything. The Tories' eyes have always been on the rearview mirror, forgetting to focus on the road ahead. They're happy to open another Beatles museum while butchering the welfare state that gave the Fab Four the financial security they needed to pursue music. They preserve Shakespeare's globe while cutting arts funding and denouncing drama as a Mickey Mouse degree. For a government that is so concerned with celebrating British heritage, they're awfully reluctant to invest in the future. And by extension, the young. While Serena extols the government to support the young, Alice Goodman faces up to her fear of death. As a child, I had a horror of death. Lying in bed at night, I would contemplate my end. From the age of three or four, there were two sources of nighttime dread for me the vastness of the universe and the inevitable annihilation of the self. Imagine the end of the universe, I would think. Now put a fence there. What's on the other side of the fence? And so on, through the vastness of space. As for death, the thought process went like this. Each year you have lived is a quarter of your life. Next year it will be a fifth. And the year after, a sixth. Until, by the time you're 20 and wearing high heels and cherry red lipstick, you will be rattling downhill at speed. If lying in bed became impossible, I'd get up and walk down the hall to the living room where my father would be reading. I am afraid of death, I would say, and he would reply, so am I, which somehow made it less awful. My father's late night reading was the Book of Common Prayer. Secure in his Enlightenment Judaism, he never thought himself in danger of conversion. Years later, he remarked to one of his granddaughters, You can teach yourself anything. You can even teach yourself not to be afraid of death. When I was 22 and in the high heels and cherry red lipstick stage of life, I met and fell in love with the man who became my husband, the poet Geoffrey Hill. Just writing that, I see the mocking, exaggerated way he would have repeated the words, the poet, and then he'd have added, the word poet has been so debased, I think we should replace it with something else, like Tharg. Geoffrey was afraid of death, too. He was also afraid of hell, and wrote eloquently of these fears. Our life together filled the decades Geoffrey described as playing in injury time after he was first diagnosed with coronary artery disease. In Geoffrey's last years, he would look out at the apple tree by his study window here, the ancient beauty of Bath, and speculate which of them would go first. On the last evening of June 2016, I brought Geoffrey's supper into the study and found him dead in his chair. His heart had simply stopped. He died without pain or dread. 
Did I learn not to be afraid of death? Did being baptized take away the fear? What about being ordained? No. But I've learned to identify that fear in many of its forms. The outrage that wealth doesn't confer immortality, the aversion to growing old, the revulsion at those who have suffered catastrophe, and so forth. The Church of England itself, as an institution, is afraid of death, though it has been playing an injury time for several centuries. Each generation is determined that she won't die on their watch. The resulting decades of evangelism, mission action plans, diocesan straplines and targets, each one more futile than the one before, create the impression that what we're dealing with here is, in fact, the final stage of a Ponzi scheme. This is the way that the established church expresses its fear of death and its doubts about resurrection. And this may be why, on the morning after Jeffrey's death, one of our local bishops, this column isn't complete without the appearance of a bishop, insisted on coming round to the rectory to pray away any malign spirits that might have crept in when Geoffrey's spirit departed his body. It was exactly like an old punch cartoon in which a vacuum cleaner salesman gets his foot in the door and insists on emptying a bag of dirt on the carpet to demonstrate the superior sucking power of his machine. If there hadn't been a friend present to witness all this, I wouldn't have trusted myself to repeat the story. Six years later, it seems to me, on reflection, that whether in one human life or in the life of an institution, the fear of death is worse than the fact of mortality. Sure, the church is dying, and yet, day by day, week by week, it goes on, living and diffusing life and hope beyond its bounds. I am dying too well past the high heels and cherry-red lipstick stage, more like Margot Heinemann in the years when Geoffrey would point her out to me, whispering a little too loudly, That's Margot Heinemann. She was a great beauty once. There never were malign spirits here. Only the presence of an all-powerful and all-loving God, and for a few years what sounded like someone walking into the bathroom upstairs and turning the taps on and off. Finally, Mike Braley finds delight in a play by Shomet Dutta on Beckett, Pinter and Cricket. Yes, no, wait. A classic piece of confused calling from a batsman putting his partner at risk. Yes means he should start running. No tells him he should stop and try to turn back. Wait means I haven't decided yet, so hold on a minute. Out of the blue, I was recently sent a play of this name, written by Shomit Dutta. We had met at a celebration of Harold Pinter's life and work at Lord's in 2009. The play is a delight. It had me laughing out loud, tight, witty, zany, and to me, touching. Samuel Beckett and Harold, I knew Harold and greatly admired him, and not without a tinge of apprehension, spend Act One waiting to go into bat at numbers five and six respectively in a game played in a Cotswold village. Two wickets are down. Beckett has his pads on, but also a great coat, and is keeping score. Pinter is bemoaning his sore ankle, bruised while saving a four off Beckett's bowling earlier in the game. Beckett is dry, anxious, sarcastic, gloomy. Pinter, choleric, blundering, passionate and intense. I won't tell you about Act Two except to say that both men, after several hours of whisky drinking, are waiting for a lift home later that evening from a man who probably batted at number seven and who may be in a crazed, murderous state, having been run out without having faced a ball by his fellow batter. His name may be Doggo. It's also possible that Doggo doesn't exist. A car approaches. A man gets out. 
standing in silhouette, stage left. Pinter keeps hold of his bat, concealing it as a weapon. Beckett has slipped away. Dutta is currently working on a digital release of the play with a potential live stage production to follow. Pinter was vocal on the subject of cricket. Certainly greater than sex, he said, though sex isn't too bad either. He wrote on the hidden violence of cricket and said that when we play, my club, each thing that happens is dramatic. The gasps that follow a miss at slip, the anger of an LBW decision turned down. Cricket is drama. Each little event, each delivery, is between two protagonists, batter and bowler, in the context of a team event. The etymology of the word theatre is something to be seen, a spectacle, whereas you don't need an audience for a cricket match. Leicester, on a damp Thursday morning, two men and a dog, and only the dog awake. One angle offered by the word sport is something to take pleasure in, to amuse oneself with, as in sporting with Amaryllis in the shade. Pinto would be fuming at this implication of triviality. In my view, as in his, sport is more aptly described and defined as agonistic, a matter of contest with winner, loser, and the possibility of a draw when one side has been completely outplayed from the first over to the last but time runs out, you can play for a draw. Competition is what comes to distinguish sport from other physical activities that also evolve from childhood play, yoga, dancing, singing, acting, becoming a toy dog, say. My granddaughter, after receiving a toy dog as a party leaving present, began barking in the back of the car as I drove, drove her home. Is the dog talking to you? I asked. No, Mike, she said with affectionate condescension. I'm being the dog. Don't you know that's what toys are for? Play carries in its range and overtones something essential to both theatre and cricket. Pinter again bears this out. So often his characters vie for the position of top dog. Play, yet not without menace utterly serious. Cricket is violence, superiority, subtlety, pressure, all made possible by its civilising rules and by an ethos of playing hard but fair. The pinter of the play wades in combatively, says yes, then no, ends with wait. What would Beckett's call have been? As in life, Dutter's Beckett late fifties, is a generation older than Pinter, late to mid-thirties. Beckett was Pinter's hero. But in the play, Pinter's argumentative with his hero and father figure. In the opening words, there's an exchange where Beckett wants to secure his exit, that is, his lift home after the match, an old habit from my days in the French resistance, to which Pinter replies sardonically and deflatingly, we're currently in the Cotswolds. The play's true father turns out to be Doggo, like Godo, or perhaps Oh God. But between Beckett and Pinter, there's quasi-paternal rivalry, impatience, as well as admiration. In Act Two, Beckett, the father figure, appears with a bandage on his head, it turns out that it was Pinter's straight drive that caused the damage. Like an adolescent, Pinter the character causes trouble all over the place. No, yes, wait. Beckett is the cautious father, cutting, subtle, anxious. For him, hopes have been deferred, if not disappointed, for decades. This is maybe what Godot suggests about the meaning of life. We wait. We pass the time that would have passed anyway. We're naturally in doubt and anxious. That is it. The characters find at most 
only a trace of Godot. Should they, we, instead expect Doggo wielding a knife? But perhaps it's only Beckett himself lying Doggo. This cricket match takes me back to the annual game between the school eleven and the staff, captained by my father, Horace, a doughty Yorkshireman brought up in that hard school. As a young man, Horace was walking off after scoring a century for Heckmundwijk when an old member in a cloth cap said to him, Well played, son, but they wouldn't have scored a hundred if their father had been bowling, rhyming with toweling. Don't, in other words, get too far ahead of yourself. My father would let me get to 2016 at table tennis and then beat me 22-20. I knew he wanted the best for me, but he also wanted me to know that I had much to learn. As an adult, I started to beat him at squash and make him red in the face with exertion, but only when I risked causing him some sort of attack. Pyrrhic victories. As for the staff match, I tried to hit my father's gentle offspin over the top, got too close to the ball and hit it quite hard but straight at Midon's chest. My father shouted, catch it! Midon, frightened by his urgency, promptly dropped the ball. My father's supposed ally at Midon had let him down. The sun was lit off the hook. But there are hooks, rivalries, conflicts, as there are between Beckett and Pinter, tied together in love and rivalry, in the Oedipal wounding and in the lifelong anxieties about who trumps whom. The boy must wait his turn. Wait, wait, wait. Perhaps that will be Beckett's call and the title of Dutta's next play. That's the end. Yes, no, wait. A classic piece of confused calling from a batsman putting his partner at risk. Yes means he should start running. No tells him he should stop and try to turn back. Wait means I haven't decided yet, so hold on a minute. Out of the blue, I was recently sent a play of this name, written by Shomit Dutta. We had met at a celebration of Harold Pinter's life and work at Lord's in 2009. The play is a delight. It had me laughing out loud, tight, witty, zany, and to me, touching. Samuel Beckett and Harold, I knew Harold and greatly admired him, though not without a tinge of apprehension, spend Act One waiting to go into bat at numbers five and six, respectively, in a game played in a Cotswold village. Two wickets are down. Beckett has his pads on, but also a great coat, and is keeping score. Pinter is bemoaning his sore ankle, bruised while saving a four off Beckett's bowling earlier in the game. Beckett is dry, anxious, sarcastic, gloomy. Pinter, choleric, blundering, passionate and intense. I won't tell you about Act Two except to say that both men after several hours of whisky drinking, are waiting for a lift home later that evening from a man who probably batted at number seven and who may be in a crazed, murderous state, having been run out without having faced a ball by his fellow batter. His name may be Doggo. It's also possible that Doggo doesn't exist. A car approaches. A man gets out. Standing in silhouette, stage left. Pinter keeps hold of his bat, concealing it as a weapon. Beckett has slipped away. Dutta is currently working on a digital release of the play with a potential live stage production to follow. Pinter was vocal on the subject of cricket. Certainly greater than sex, he said though sex isn't too bad either. He wrote on the hidden violence of cricket and said that when we play, my club, each thing that happens is dramatic. The gasps that follow a miss at slip, the anger of an LBW decision turned down. Cricket is drama. 
Each little event, each delivery, is between two protagonists, batter and bowler, in the context of a team event. The etymology of the word theatre is something to be seen, a spectacle, whereas you don't need an audience for a cricket match. Leicester, on a damp Thursday morning, two men and a dog, and only the dog awake. One angle offered by the word sport is something to take pleasure in, to amuse oneself with, as in sporting with Amaryllis in the shade. Pinto would be fuming at this implication of triviality. In my view, as in his, sport is more aptly described and defined as agonistic, a matter of contest with winner, loser, and the possibility of a draw when one side has been completely outplayed from the first over to the last, but time runs out, you can play for a draw. Competition is what comes to distinguish sport from other physical activities that also evolve from childhood play, yoga, dancing, singing, acting, becoming a toy dog, say. My granddaughter, after receiving a toy dog as a party leaving present, began barking in the back of the car as I drove drove her home. Is the dog talking to you? I asked. No, Mike, she said with affectionate condescension. I'm being the dog. Don't you know that's what toys are for? Play carries in its range and overtones something essential to both theatre and cricket. Pinter again bears this out. So often his characters vie for the position of top dog. Play, yet not without menace, utterly serious. Cricket is violence, superiority, subtlety, pressure, all made possible by its civilising rules and by an ethos of playing hard but fair. The pinter of the play wades in combatively, says yes, then no, ends with wait. What would Beckett's call have been? As in life, Dutter's Beckett, late fifties, is a generation older than Pinter, late to mid-thirties. Beckett was Pinter's hero. But in the play, Pinter's argumentative with his hero and father figure. In the opening words, there's an exchange where Beckett wants to secure his exit, that is, his lift home after the match, an old habit from my days in the French resistance, to which Pinter replies, sardonically and deflatingly, we're currently in the Cotswolds. The play's true father turns out to be Doggo, like Godo, or perhaps Oh God. But between Beckett and Pinter, there's quasi-paternal rivalry, impatience, as well as admiration. In Act Two, Beckett, the father figure, appears with a bandage on his head. It turns out that it was Pinter's straight drive that caused the damage. Like an adolescent, Pinter the character causes trouble all over the place. No, yes, wait. Beckett is the cautious father, cutting, subtle, anxious. For him, hopes have been deferred, if not disappointed, for decades. This is maybe what Godot suggests about the meaning of life. We wait. We pass the time that would have passed anyway. We're naturally in doubt and anxious. That is it. The characters find at most only a trace of Godot. Should they, we, instead expect Doggo wielding a knife? but perhaps it's only Beckett himself, lying doggo. This cricket match takes me back to the annual game between the school eleven and the staff, captained by my father, Horace, a doughty Yorkshireman brought up in that hard school. As a young man, Horace was walking off after scoring a century for Heckmundwijk when an old member in a cloth cap said to him, Well played, son. But they wouldn't have scored a hundred if their father had been bowling, rhyming with toweling. Don't, in other words, get too far ahead of yourself. 
My father would let me get to 2016 at table tennis and then beat me 22-20. I knew he wanted the best for me, but he also wanted me to know that I had much to learn. As an adult, I started to beat him at squash and make him red in the face with exertion, but only when I risked causing him some sort of attack. Pyrrhic victories. As for the staff match, I tried to hit my father's gentle offspin over the top, got too close to the ball and hit it quite hard but straight at Midon's chest. My father shouted, Catch it! Midon, frightened by his urgency, promptly dropped the ball. My father's supposed ally of Midon had let him down. The sun was let off the hook. But there are hooks, rivalries, conflicts, as there are between Beckett and Pinter, tied together in love and rivalry, in the Oedipal wounding and in the lifelong anxieties about who trumps whom. The boy must wait his turn. Wait, wait, wait. Perhaps that will be Beckett's call and the title of Dutta's next play. Thank you so much for tuning into our Prospect Lives podcast. Listen out to hear more from our family of writers in June and tune into our regular podcast, the Prospect Podcast, every Wednesday. If you enjoyed hearing from our wonderful Lives columnists, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of Prospect from the newsstand now. Or go to our website, where you can read writing from Ethan Zuckerman, Brenda Hale, Beth Rigby, and many more. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.